Good evening. <laughs> you guys are having too much fun. If that's possible, I don't know. All right. Well, looking forward to joining you in another evening in God's Word and our journey through Genesis. It's been good stuff so far, huh? God's Word is amazing. And uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 4. Uh, real quick, a couple reminders, announcements. Uh, we have the movie night coming up. Who's coming to that? Oh, yeah. Passion of the Christ. This Friday, right, Adam? 7 o'clock. Come a little early, get set up, get your snacks all dialed in. Uh, but more importantly, I encourage you to be in God's Word during this season. Be looking to the real reason for the season, as they say, as we're celebrating the resurrection as we're celebrating what Christ did for us, uh, be in God's word, be reading that account, and be preparing your heart to really um, see what God would show you during this time, because it's a good reminder. It's why we celebrate it. And um, even leading up to uh, that evening, I encourage you to invite people to come and witness uh, a bit of a glimpse of what Christ did for us. It's going to be very impactful. If you've seen that movie, you know um, how impactful that movie is. And so I encourage you, invite some people who need to know that message uh, for Friday night. Invite them on out. Come on out and join us. Also, a Good Friday service. Reminder, that's up at the camp. Uh, we're going to be joining up with uh, Springs of Life and going up there and, and uh, joining some of the rest of the body of Christ to celebrate that together. And Easter service, just a quick reminder as well, um, to be putting questions in the offering box out there if you've got questions about Easter, why is it even called Easter, Rhonda and I were talking about that today, but what, what's in the name, or you know, how confident can we be in the uh, historical accuracy of the account and all of those types of things, whatever it may be, you may have questions uh, in the back of your mind about Good Friday, about Easter, uh, we want to try and tackle some of those as part of the service, so put those in the offering box and make sure you get those in uh, so that we can have a chance to look those over and prepare and see if we can't answer some of those. So that's it for now on those things. Genesis chapter 4. So Genesis chapter 4 is a pretty tragic account. It starts off um, with some pretty sad uh, circumstances and actions. We see the immediate results of sin and what devastating effects they had on mankind, on all of us. You know, in chapter 4, it seems to be one of those chapters that it's a story we're all very familiar with. We've all heard of Cain and Abel, right? Okay. It's a pretty safe bet. A lot of people have. And even people who aren't in the church, it's a, it's a common story. We've heard the term raising Cain, right? We know where that comes from, right here in Scripture, Genesis chapter 4. And that is not something that is considered good to do, right? Raising Cain is not something you want to be accused of. Uh, and so Cain's name lives on in infamy because of this uh, chapter. But I want to challenge you and encourage you, and something that God hit me with in approaching this chapter and looking at this story, this familiar story, one of the dangers is when we encounter a familiar story in Scripture, we can easily kind of superimpose our presuppositions on that passage. We kind of go, oh, I know this story. And we read through it and we apply those common Sunday school principles or whatever it is that we apply to it, and sometimes we miss some of the deeper truths or we miss the entire point, and I want to encourage you to try and come at this passage, though it's a familiar story, 
with a fresh set of eyes and see what God would speak to you in it. I want to give you a brief recap. If you remember, uh, we looked, we just finished up in, in chapter 3 with the fall. We looked at how Adam and Eve attempted to cover their first act of sin, their, their, their choice to disobey God. And in doing so, we really saw what was in essence the beginning of religion. Uh, Adam and Eve, in their attempt to cover themselves, was really uh, the, where religion started. Religion being defined as man's attempt to reconcile with God in and of his own efforts. Religion being defined as our attempt to make it with our own, our own way, our own methods uh, to please God. Adam and Eve committed that sort of that first act of religion. They initiated religion right there by covering themselves up with fig leaves. And God had taught them a very important lesson in covering them with something else and replacing their attempts with his work, with his work that was far more sufficient. And it's important we remember this as we go into chapter 4. That stage being set, that context, helps us understand what's being taught here in chapter 4. And what, what Adam and Eve learned in their sin, we're going to be able to apply the same principles here in understanding what happened with Cain and Abel. You know, recently I was asked by someone down at the YMCA if I considered myself religious. And it's an interesting question. How would you answer that? No? No. And we know what that means, right? But we have to think about this was not a Christian. So someone who's not a Christian, what's their perception of a religious person? Someone who believes in God and follows certain practices and all of that. And so I found it actually more challenging, especially in light of the study, I found it a more challenging question to answer than I normally think of because I go, well, how do I answer this in a way that makes sense to this guy? Because what he's asking me, obviously talking to another believer, you and I know what the right answer is, right? We know what we're supposed to say, that obviously, no, I'm not religious. Religious being defined as what we know Scripture to define it as. It's not about our attempts to please God. It's not about works and what we can earn. It's about relationship, right? It's about knowing God. God wants our heart, not our actions. But a non-believer doesn't understand all that. They just want to know you know, whether I believe in, in the man upstairs and, and this thing called the Bible and all that kind of stuff. So it was interesting because it's a challenging question to answer, and I wanted you to be thinking about that. How would you answer that question? I, I ultimately ended up telling, well, yes and no. <laughs> yes, in the sense that what you're probably referring to is, yes, I believe in God with all my heart. I believe we can know him personally. And yes, I believe the Bible to be true cover to cover. So if that's what you mean by religious, absolutely. But understand that nothing I do can earn, me, earn my way to heaven. It's not about what I can do or the works I follow, the church I attend. It's about what Christ did for me. It's about what God did for me. And so I kind of had to qualify that. But I want you to be thinking about that question, be thinking about that context as we look at this, because it's important in the principles we're going to learn in this chapter. You know, what are our fig leaves? Going to church, maybe, might be our fig leaf. We think, oh, you know, I go to church and that's, I'm, I'm good. Or perhaps it's a, uh, Following certain rules and regulations. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do this. I don't do that. Whatever it may be. It could be, don't you? It could be uh, acts of service. It could be philanthropy. It could be all kinds of things that are good in and of themselves. But it's our fig leaves. It's our attempt at religion, at what Adam and Eve attempted in the very beginning to cover themselves, to reconcile themselves, to earn something that they could never earn. And we need to be aware of that. 
It's our reliance that's the issue. What are we relying on? Are we relying on what we can do? Are we relying on what God did? So we have that hint in chapter 3. God himself teaching Adam and Eve this critical lesson about how innocent blood must be shed in order for sin to be covered, in order for proper sacrifice to be made. And there's a certain key in this element to understanding chapter 4. But as we see sin playing out in the life of Cain and Abel, I want to read um, a bit of an opening scripture to you from James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. It says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is full, gro- full grown, brings forth death. And that is what we are witnessing in this account. That is what we're seeing here. And it's important to understand the nature of temptation. It could be easy to accuse God of creating a no-win situation for Adam and Eve, going, how could he put him in the midst of that kind of temptation? And remember, Scripture clearly teaches us, God does not tempt us. God does not try to seduce us to sin. What God did, though, is provide a legitimate choice, gave us true free will. And so there's a very important distinction to be made there. So let's read this passage together as we go through this account here in Genesis chapter 4. It says, And now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so now you are cursed from the earth, from which uh, you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. In my opinion, that's a bit merciful. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. And the family of Cain, it goes on and says, And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, 
on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mehujael, and Mehujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. And then Lamech took for himself two, two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwelt in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and every, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Amon, uh, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. A lot in there. We're going to try and tackle all that tonight. We'll see how it goes. So before we get started, why don't we pray one more time and just ask, ask God's Spirit to to guide us through his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for this time we have in your word. We thank you that your word is faithful and true, that not one word of yours fails. Lord, help us to rightly divine the word of truth, to understand it, to glean from it, and Lord, to apply it properly. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you have planned for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so diving right in, let's look and see if we can unpack this a little bit. As we look at chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So first of all, Cain. Cain means begotten. uh, Pretty simple um, name to name him. That's pretty uh, appropriate. But Eve recognized uh, that having a son was a gift from the Lord. She said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. She recognized that children were a gift from God. And even despite the curse, even despite the pain that she obviously went through in bearing Cain and Abel, she recognized that having a, having a, a heritage, having lineage, having children was a gift from God. You know, and it's interesting to note here that it's not the firstborn uh, through whom the line of Christ would come. You know, Satan used this firstborn, Cain here, in his attempt to thwart God's plan of redemption right off the bat. And we see that through, obviously, the killing of Abel. But if we look at the line, we see, at, we see how over and over again God redeems his lineage and he uses not, he doesn't always use the firstborn. We see Ishmael versus Isaac, Ishmael being the classic example of a fleshly attempt to accomplish God's will. And then Isaac comes along as a fulfillment of God's promise, the secondborn. Esau and Jacob. Jacob was born second. Even David, King David, was not the firstborn. He wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the handsomest. He wasn't the first pick. And that's who God chose. So we see a bit of a trend here in how God picks his men and how God works and how God ultimately planned to carry out his plan of redemption. So Abel was a shepherd, but Cain was a farmer. And it goes on to say in verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. 
And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And so the drama begins. Cain gets upset, and we look at first glance looking at this story. Honestly, it's a little bit confusing. It seems like Cain brought his best to God, and Abel brought his best to God, and God said, yeah, I like yours, but I don't like yours. And it's almost like, is God picking favorites here? Why, why would God not accept Cain's offering? And there doesn't seem to be much explanation here. And yet somehow Abel's offering was accepted. Well, there's certain things we have to look at. We've got to look a little deeper. And though it's not plainly given to us, it doesn't spell out right here in the text. Well, the reason why is because Cain uh, gave rotten apples to God and, and uh, Abel's was the best lamb in his flock. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't really tell us um, right off the bat here. But if we look a little closer, I think we'll see a good picture very clearly of what is going on here. What's interesting, just a little side note, is here you have Cain and Abel. You have two brothers born into the same family of the same parents, grew up in the same environment, under the same instruction, and yet you have complete opposites. We have complete different results. And, they, and, and here is the freedom of choice played out perfectly once again in how Abel and Cain had, both had the opportunity to follow God and to obey him and to please him. One did, one did not. So here's an important distinction to draw. First of all, one of the first mistakes we can make, I think, in understanding this passage is we can assume that uh, the offering that Cain and Abel brought it was just merely a result of their occupation. And therefore, it was appropriate that, well, of course, Cain, being a farmer, brought his best to God. And so, of course, that would make sense. That was the right thing for him to offer his, and then we have Abel being a, a, a shepherd, and therefore he brought a sheep. But defining this situation by that uh, is not an accurate way to interpret this passage. I would, uh, I would beg to differ in that interpretation. And honestly, that's one of the first things that I sort of misunderstood in looking at it before I dug deeper and really examined the text. But that's a common error where you look at it and go, well... There doesn't seem to be a problem here other than just simply God chose Abel over Cain. And that comes from thinking that, well, just God just wanted the best of whatever their occupation was. It wasn't what God was looking for. So where did he go wrong? Is it because he didn't offer the first fruits? It doesn't say that. Um, was it the condition of his heart? Uh, we're not, again, we're not told directly, but there's a clue in verse 4. So let's start there. There's a hint here in verse 4 about Abel's offering, it says, as to the firstborn and the fat thereof. Why would, it, why would it give us that detail? Well, you know, that may sound familiar to you, and if it does, the reason why is it's repeated throughout the Torah. It's repeated throughout the Levitical law. And this is one of the requirements. What's being described here is, is not just a random sacrifice, but there's actually details of how the sacrifice was to be done that we don't find out more about really until we see the Levitical law spelled out later on, which would indicate pretty clearly, actually, that these laws and these institutions, what was a proper sacrifice acceptable to God, was defined well before Moses, well before we had those stone tablets, well before all the things were spelled out later. God, God from the beginning laid out his standards, laid out what a proper sacrifice was, 
and it would make sense that he gave that instruction directly to Adam and Eve. Right there at the first sacrifice, he demonstrated it. So Cain and Abel knew what was an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord, what God was looking for, and not only that, what that sacrifice was meant to represent. So it seems clear from the indications here and throughout other scriptures that even, again, what do we talk about with the Sabbath? The Sabbath was instituted well before the Ten Commandments, wasn't it? The Sabbath was instituted well before all the rest of the Levitical laws. We see that there's a trend here that clearly God had established much of his laws and what he expected directly with Adam and Eve. And so Abel knew what a proper sacrifice was. He knew how to do it. And it says he offered this offering and the fat thereof and the firstborn. He knew exactly what God was looking for. And, you know, we compare this to our modern-day giving and our modern-day sacrifices. Um, there comes a question of how do we know, how did Cain and Abel know that God accepted their sacrifice? You know, we have the offering box out there. And as we come in or go out, we, we put our tithes, our, our offerings in there, sort of our modern-day sacrifice, you might say, a monetary sacrifice. And when it comes to earthly measures, I mean, as long as the check doesn't bounce, we pretty much know it's accepted, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, we got through. Sacrifice is good. The giving is good. But how do we know that it was accepted by God? Because is that gift just merely for man? What is the purpose of that? That's meant to be given to who? To God, right? That's, that's a gift for God's work. That's, that's something we sacrifice and give as to the Lord, not to men, not to the people of this church, to the Lord. How do we know that he is accepting that? You know, and that comes down to a condition of our hearts. Where are we at? Is that something we gave with joy? Or did we give it out of obligation? Is it something we gave out of humility and clearly to the Lord, or did we give it to receive praise of men? That's how we know if it was received of the Lord. Because it doesn't matter to him whether we gave five bucks or 5,000 bucks. That's not what he's looking for, is it? He's looking for the condition of our hearts, and nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. But back then, how did Cain and Abel know that their sacrifice was accepted? Well, one of the things that have been put forth, one of the theories, one of the concepts I would mention to you is it's possible that it was apparent and obvious that it was visible when God accepted a sacrifice. What am I talking about? Well, Leviticus 9 gives us an example of fire coming down and consuming the sacrifice. Okay? We also see in, Gideon, uh, in Gideon's case, in Judges chapter 6, fire coming down and consuming the sacrifice, God visibly accepting that sacrifice and consuming it. Samson's parents had the same experience. Elijah on Mount Carmel, we all know that story, right? When Elijah went up against the prophets and he had the water dumped on it and the trench around it and the whole thing uh, to prove whose God was true and real. And what happened? Fire came down and consumed it. Was there any doubt that God accepted that sacrifice? No. You know, and again, we see uh, in David's case in 1 Chronicles 21 and Solomon, 2 Chronicles 7.1, so here's six cases, and possibly, maybe Abel would count as a seventh, but it's possible that that is what 
was the indicator. Obviously, that God had obviously visibly accepted that sacrifice. We don't know for sure it doesn't tell us, but that could have been what was the indication. And what's interesting here is we see that it's clear God paid no attention to Cain's sacrifice. We have a kind of a classic case of doing the right thing the wrong way. Ever, ever experienced that, doing the right thing the wrong way? I think we're pretty good at that as, as human beings. There's some examples of that throughout Scripture that I'll give to you. Um, Psalms 51.16 says, For you do not desire sacrifice, this is speaking to God, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These God you will not despise. According to Scripture, God is far more concerned with why and how we are doing the right things not just with doing the right things. He's not so concerned with, did we do the right thing, but why did we do it? How did we do it? Because that reflects our heart. And that's what he's looking for here. But again, in this case, the right thing was very important because it was a reflection of some things we'll talk about here a little bit later. You know, there was a person I knew, I went to, uh, back in 2001, I got to go down to Australia and spend three months there. It was an awesome time for me, uh, and it was a, a pretty odd time to be down there. It was, I was actually on a plane heading there uh, when the, in 2001 in September. Uh, when the planes hit the two towers, I was in a plane on my way to Australia. And uh, so then landing in Australia, I found out about what had just happened at my, in my home. And uh, you know, so it was a hard time to be down there and be gone. And uh, it was pretty crazy, the difference that I saw. You can imagine the contrast that I saw of what the country was when I left and what it was when I came back. It was pretty amazing. But while I was down there, we were setting up a new Bible College Extension campus, and I had a team of seven of us, and we were taking, I was actually doing my last semester there in Australia. And I met a missionary down there uh, that had been there uh, before us for over a month, and they were actually staying longer than we were. Um, and this particular person, uh, it just it made me think of this particular scripture because this particular person and I ultimately kind of butted heads for a while. Because up to this point, um, I, have, I have been on quite a few missionary trips. I had I'd gone to Peru, I'd been to Ireland, been to China, been to many places, and, and, and served the Lord in various countries. And so it's been a privilege for me to do that. And every time I went, it was always a very draining, very hardworking experience. It was, it was truly a sacrifice. It was something where it was like, okay, we're here for this amount of time, and we utterly spend ourselves for this amount of time. That was the idea. And I had never met a missionary like this before who spent their afternoons at Starbucks and kind of hung out and did whatever, and they were kind of supporting the church and, and uh, the ministry down there, and it really frustrated me because I found out towards the end of my trip there that they were 100% supported by donations from churches, that everything that they were living on, everything that paid for their Starbucks coffee every day, was coming from a church back home. And to me, that is the epitome of doing the right thing the wrong way. Going to another country to serve the Lord, to sacrifice for Him, be out of your comfort zone, and it uh, couldn't have been more wrong in how it was being done. And it was really sad to see how God's resources were being wasted there. And I just bring that up to illustrate the point that there's a lot of ways we can do the right thing the wrong way. 
There's a lot of ways we can attempt to serve God in the wrong manner. We see it classic throughout Israel's history. Um, we see it, uh, you know, we can even in evangelism, it can be, can evangelism be done the wrong way? Absolutely. Have you ever seen someone try to ram Christ down people's throats, ram, beat people over the head with the Bible? Uh, it can be done wrong. How about uh, exhorting your brothers and sisters, giving them a little truth to chew on? Can we do that the wrong way? Absolutely. You know, the Pharisees were experts at doing the right thing the wrong way, weren't they? they? That was what they excelled in. Praying, tithing, fasting. They did all of that wrong. And Jesus made it pretty clear to them, listen, listen you, got, you, you, you couldn't be more off. Uh, they, and, he, and he challenged them on it. What did he say? You know, you're praying on the street corner, you're fasting, and you're making this whole ugly face. You, everything you do is to be seen by men, and your reward is here. And, and, and that, is, that is classic of what is happening here with Cain and Abel. You know, this word respect here, it says God did not respect Cain's sacrifice, but he respected Abel's. And one of the reasons I think that it may have been a very visible uh, reception by God of the sacrifice is because the word respect really indicates even considering it or gazing at it. It's a really physical implication of, of reception and it says that he just utterly, it basically makes it sound like he just completely ignored Cain's sacrifice. Like Cain's sacrifice sat there on the altar untouched and Abel's was consumed. And Cain obviously got upset. It says his countenance fell. It's interesting, this word fell means it was cast down. It means to cease or to die. It means to be lost, to be overwhelmed, or to utterly perish. Uh, so Cain was pretty bummed out. He was pretty upset about this. And what's sad, though, is we come to find out Cain's, Cain's sadness, Cain's frustration was not one of repentance, was it? It wasn't, man, I want God's fellowship. Man, I want to I please God. It was, man, how dare my brother have something better than me? It was jealousy. It was pride. His, his ego was hurt. That was the problem here. But what's amazing about our God is we go on to read in verse 6 how... God in his mercy comes to Cain and instructs him. God instructs him. God doesn't leave him hanging and wondering. God works with him, even though Cain already knew at that point what he should have done. Cain, the Lord comes to him in verse 6. And unfortunately, Cain fails to heed this warning. But God says, so the Lord said to Cain in verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Yet if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. You know what I see here? I see a God who is so compassionate and still wants Cain's heart, still wants to restore him, still wants him to come to repentance and join Abel uh, with Abel's obedience. He says he's, he's encouraging him, don't let sin take hold of your life. Don't let sin rule over you. Don't let sin win. You need to rule over it. You need to resist it. Why are you angry? If you do well, you'll be accepted. You shouldn't be upset. If anything, you should be sad and repentant. We see Cain's pride here. We see his jealousy here. In the very beginning, it was the fall of Satan. Now it's the fall of Cain. Can, we, can you guess why God hates pride? Over and over again, we see it get in the way and destroy people. And Isaiah 118, I think, really illustrates this well, where it says, 
where the Lord says, come now, let us reason together. And God is pleading with his people there. And he says, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's pretty much what happened here. So what about Abel? How do we know Abel did it right? Is there more confirmation? And there is some more scripture, and I want to give you some of that. Hebrews 11.4 tells us a little about Abel. Hebrews 11, starting verse 4. turns out Abel made it into the hall of faith. He made it, he's got his plaque on the wall for his faith in God. And he is one of those, of the first few mentioned, who for his faith was considered a great man in the history of, of this story of redemption. And it says, verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. And so, Cain here, or Abel here, we're seeing, we see it was, was uh, praised for his faith. And that is why his sacrifice pleased God, that he did what was acceptable to God. He trusted God, it says by faith. In other words, he trusted God, that doing it God's way was best. That's what faith is. When you lack faith, you figure, well, I think I can do it my way and it'll still be okay. I can still please God with my plan because my plan is just as good. That was Cain's problem. Abel had the faith to trust that God's way was the best way. And Cain, as I mentioned before, more importantly, well, I don't know if it's more importantly, but in addition, Cain defiled God's plan of redemption and his picture of redemption and what God was doing there. Because God spelled out how sacrifices were to be done is because it was part of pointing to what was to come in Christ. Cain failed to follow that, that prescribed action, failed to follow that, that plan and that picture, and that was one of the reasons that his sacrifice was rejected. Luke eleven forty nine. I'm going to read a couple other scriptures to you that will help clarify this. In Luke eleven forty nine, we're told that Abel in essence, was considered the first prophet. These are Jesus' words. In, in Luke eleven forty nine, it says, For this reason, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of, them will kill, some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed since the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. This is Jesus speaking. And from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, Yes, I tell you, it should be charged against this generation. So he equates Abel to being one of the prophets. Abel basically being the first prophet. And his actions pointing to Christ, pointing to God's redemption and what God was going to fulfill later on in offering that lamb. It was a picture of something. See, it wasn't just about uh, offering something to God arbitrarily and that's okay. It had much more significance than that. Because one day the lamb of God would come and pay the ultimate and complete and final price. And that's what it's meant to be a picture of. Hebrews 12, verse 20, starting in verse 22, going through verse 24, talks us, gives us a little more insight into this as well. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, 
to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks of better things than Abel. Of better things than who? Than Abel, of all people. So clearly, the sacrifice of Abel, what he did, his act of faith there, was meant to be a picture of something. It was a picture here of the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. Cain's sin was, was to deviate from that, was to utterly disobey God's clear outline of what a sacrifice was to be. And one more scripture I'll give for you. It says in 1 John 3.10, this is the, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. From when? From the beginning. That we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. So we're giving us a pretty good insight there, aren't we? As to what happened here in Genesis 4. And so reading on and recapping, it says in God's exhortation to Cain, he says, talks about sin lying at Cain's door. He talks about trying to pull him out and still wants to restore him. Yet he allowed that sin to creep in and we see what happened when we pick up in verse 8. And it's interesting how he says sins lies at the door. You know, one of the first things that that made me think of is a verse in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5 talks about Satan. And you get this picture of sin like it's creeping around trying to destroy you. Uh, What does that remind you of? Some lion that we read about, maybe, in 1 Peter 5? It says, Likewise, you young people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care on him. For he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood in the world. This is almost a reflection of the exhortation God himself gave to Cain here in in chapter 4 in Genesis. So picking up in verse 8, it says, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So as we read in the very beginning in James, it said, When sin has fully conceived, it brings forth what? Death. That's exactly what happened here, isn't it? It resulted in, in death. The sin in Cain's life resulted in him getting to a point where he succumbed to, to Satan's temptations, to his own fleshly desires. He let his jealousy and his anger get the better of him, and he killed his brother. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Sounds familiar. Again, what did God do when he came to Adam and Eve? Did he come out swinging and attacking them? No, he asked them a question. Why was that, if you remember? Why did he ask them something he already knew? Want to give him a chance, right? A chance to confess. He wanted to give him a chance to repent. He's always seeking to restore. Every step of the way in this, 
Isn't it amazing how every step of the way God is seeking to restore and to forgive? So he asks Cain, where's your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, quite frankly, the answer to that question would be yes, actually. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and I shall be hidden from your face, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Why is he so upset here? Well, first of all, remember he's a farmer, so you know, the irony of this punishment is the very thing that is the essence of what he does is being taken from him. Every bit of his work, his identity is he's a farmer. He tills the ground. He's good at it. He brings forth fruit. Now, no matter what effort he puts in, he's going to get nothing in return. Talk about the essence of vanity in your existence. Why didn't God, you know, this passage again makes me ask the question, why didn't God take Cain's life? You ever ask that when you read this? You ever think that? Why didn't he just do that whole eye for an eye thing? We read later on in the law, there's some pretty severe punishments inflicted there, isn't there? There's some pretty severe consequences set up for disobedience. And yet here, God seems like he's letting Cain off easy. Why did he do that? And honestly, you know, we're not given a lot of explanation, but other than what we can see in this whole thread through the chapter, I would just simply say that, you know, again, we're seeing God's mercy here. That God is, is not taking his life. You know, and, and Cain here is talking about that anyone who finds him will kill him. Who's he talking about? I think that we have sort of this picture that we have Cain and Abel, the first two uh, sons mentioned of Adam and Eve. And we kind of get this picture like it's basically Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and there's no one else on planet Earth. But if we read the genealogies later on, how long were people living back then? Like almost a thousand years? 900 years, 800 years? In a very, very long a time, fa- time frame we can't even hardly fathom. Can you imagine being 900 years old today and what you would have seen in the Earth's changes over the past 900 years? Can you imagine? I can't even, it's hard for me to even fathom what that would be like, someone who had been around that long. Uh, the kind of knowledge they would have, what kind of wisdom they would have. But we're not told exactly how much time has gone by here. For all we know, Cain and Abel are a few hundred years old. I mean, we really don't know what all in the time frame has happened here. And some speculate there at this point in time could easily be a couple hundred thousand people on the earth at this time. There could easily be settlements and and places set up. There could be a whole lot because they could easily be, we don't know how many hundreds of years old they are. So his fear of other people killing him, obviously it's going to be pretty tough to hide what he did. Pretty tough. And so you can imagine there would be those who would want to take vengeance into their own hands. So we're soon going to hear about these cities being built here, all these people who master different skills and all this stuff. That doesn't happen overnight. That obviously happens over time, over quite a bit of time. And so their indication here is they're, they're quite a ways into spending their time outside of the Garden of Eden. And it's possible there was many, many people in many different cities. So reading on in verse 15, it says, The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod to the east of Eden. The mark. There's a lot of speculation around this mark. There's a lot of ideas as to what it could be. Um, you know, some even speculate it was some sort of racial thing. Uh, the first black man ever, kind of crazy. Uh, some of the things that people speculate this mark was that he was actually the first of black men. Um, of course, everyone in his lineage was killed off at the flood, so not like that would matter. But we really don't know. Bottom line is we're not told. I highly doubt it had anything to do with race. But there was some sort of mark given. This mark, another thing to note is this mark, actually the word in the original Hebrew means a flag, a beacon, a monument. could even be a sign or a token. So it's even possible this mark wasn't necessarily something on him. Something could have been something he was given. could have been something he carried. We don't know what it was. Um, so really just more of as a side note, um, this, this mark is a mystery. We don't know what it was. There may be some who would speculate or tell you that they know what it is. We're not told. Scripture doesn't spell it out. So anyone who says they know for a fact, uh, you can move on. <laughs> we're not told. But then it goes on in verse 17. We're given a little bit about the family and the line of Enoch. Or I'm sorry, the line of Cain. In verse 17 it says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mehuel, Mehujael, and Mehujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech, and Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the second was Zillah. This Lamech character is an interesting person because just kind of out of the blue we get these details about him. But Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So what's interesting here is we're starting to see a little bit of detail about Cain's line, and he kind of begs the question, well, why does God give us this detail? Why does he bother to even give us Cain's lineage? And we see some redemption here. We kind of see how God still brought about some things uh, through Cain's family. We have the, so the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. In other words, expert herdsmen and livestock keepers, Another son, verse 21, who was the father of all those who play the harp and, and the flute. And then Zillah, who bore Tubal-Cain, instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. So again, a lot of time is being passed here. We have experts and people who can, who can mold and, and use metals, who uh, can play musical instruments, who can uh, uh, you know, breed and manage livestock and do all these things, build cities. And all of this coming from Cain's lineage. Um, there are those, you know, it's interesting, again, the question why. Why do we have this information? What are we meant to make of it? Why are we given a little insight into the rest of Cain's family? Um, well, interestingly enough, if we look at some of the names of Cain's children, we can get an indication possibly of what was going on with Cain and during that time. And there's some who would say that during this time, Cain actually repented. Cain actually uh, sought restoration with God. We don't know that. We're not told that. But it's interesting in reading uh, and studying the names of his sons. Enoch means to initiate or discipline, to dedicate or train up. And so it sort of speaks of the di discipline and the training of God. Uh, the next son, Irad, is, means fugitive. And Mehujael means smitten of God. 
sort of speaking of that mark possibly or something along those lines. But what's interesting is then going on to uh, Methushael, it, that his name actually means man who is of God or a man of God. The last word, the, the, that, that name actually being of two root words, the last root word being El or God itself. And so there seems to be this bit of a journey, this story told about Cain in his children's names. And this last one indicating that possibly there was a man of God in his family or that there was some sort of repentance that might have happened there. We're not told, but it's interesting to think because we're given these details, I believe, for a reason because everything in Scripture is for a reason. And it's just something to consider how God's long-suffering plays out in Cain's life. So wrapping up the chapter here, we see in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Again, this is one of those things where we don't really know what he's talking about. Who did he kill? Who was it? There are speculations, there are theories. Uh, uh, some say that he was actually out hunting with a son of his and killed one of his sons on accident. And so he basically is saying, you know, hey, if this guy who killed someone out of intentional murder uh, is protected, more so am I. But again, that's this theory that's a lot of um, pretty, it's some pretty uh, stretch, big stretches that are made there to even uh, count that for anything. So we don't know really what he's talking about. But interestingly enough, we're given some of these little glimpses into his, his family. But reading on, verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For she said, For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom, came, whom Cain killed. And Seth literally means appointed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. In wrapping up, I want to make some comments and some interesting notes on this last verse here. In the King James, and in the original text that they used to interpret it, it says, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. But there's actually a lot of controversy over this statement. And, and one of the initial red flags or, or questions is, well, why would it say that at, at the point of Enosh, Seth's son, men began to call on the name of the Lord? Well, didn't Adam ever call on the name of the Lord? What about Abel? Abel was known for being righteous and, and being a man of faith and offering a pleasing sacrifice. Did he not call on the Lord? And so there's those who have questioned it, and the, some of the original texts, or the text that the King James Version used, um, there's some alternate texts that are actually uh, pretty well heralded through, um, throughout the Hebrew scribes and, and throughout the culture. There's, a, there's a, some source text called the Targum, of Ankylos, and this translation, um, there's many Hebrew scholars that believe that it's a more accurate rendition of what the original text said, and the origin and that that those texts actually what that with the way they read this last verse is that it, then men began to profane the name of the Lord, or be, or they desisted or ceased from praying in the name of the Lord, um, and so it actually gives the opposite gives the opposite impression that. From that point on, we saw a massive apostasy. That is actually the beginning of apostasy, not the beginning of calling on the name of the Lord. And it seems to fit, but again, it's something to consider here because we know that there were those before Enosh that did call on the name of the Lord. 
But according to many Hebrew sages, those who studied these ancient texts and some of the different source texts, because there's different source texts from which we get our modern translations, um, many of them believe that these source texts are, are the more accurate of, the t- of those chosen from, and that it was really the days of Enosh that idolatry began, and that apostasy began, and, and all of that falling away began, which led up to the flood. So... What does all this mean? What can we learn from this? Well, bottom line is I think that the story of Cain and Abel, aside from being a story of of sin played out and tragedy, it's also a story of a God of great mercy and compassion. And how every step of the way, how God dealt with the fall of Adam and Eve and, and their disobedience, how he dealt with Cain every step of the way, constantly God was seeking to restore them, to give them a chance to confess a chance to uh, do it his way, uh, a chance to come back. And, you know, in Adam and Eve's case, I'd like to think that they, that they did, they, that they would have uh, done it God's way and passed on that heritage as best they could. But we see Cain being the epitome of choosing not to, rejecting to the uttermost God's best for someone, rejecting God's pleas, rejecting God's seeking to save. And it's no different today. After Christ having come, Nobody is thrown into hell. People choose hell. Nobody, uh, nobody is, is, is really, by God's design, meant for hell. God pleads and seeks to save the lost. He came for the lost and the sinner and the broken, and he constantly seeks to restore them. We're told throughout the Old Testament, when God describes himself, he says he's the God of all mercy and, and compassion. He's long-suffering and forgiving thousands imparting mercy and forgiveness. And he describes himself that way, and we see that played out here. That he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy, giving grace. And so we also see that the plan of redemption was clearly indicated even from the beginning with Cain and Abel, and the picture of Christ was clearly indicated even from the beginning with Abel's sacrifice. So I just want to encourage you to know that our God is merciful and compassionate, that there are those that he would continue to seek and to save, that he doesn't give up, that he seeks to save to the uttermost. Even Cain, he had such mercy on someone like Cain, the first murderer in the Bible. Uh, God wanted to see him restored. And that tells us something about our God, something that's important, I think, for all of us to know and should change our perspective towards one another as well as towards our neighbor who is lost. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you are compassionate with us, with me, that you're slow to anger with me. Lord, when I attempt uh, my fig leaves and I attempt my works of, of religion to please you or to earn things on my own which are utterly worthless, Lord, you always come and seek to restore. You always are compassionate in dealing with us. And I thank you for that. I thank you that The God we see in the Old Testament is the same as the one in the New. That you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're unchanging. And that if we look close enough, we can see how clear that is. That you've always sought to save every lost person. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to have your heart towards this lost world. Help us to have your same compassion and long-suffering. That we would never give up on anyone, be it a family member or a neighbor or someone who just downright treats us bad. 
Help us to have your heart, Lord. So we thank you for your word. May it be hidden in our hearts. May it be coming to service and applied in, in those times that we need it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.